At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now, on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves. Today's episode is a really special one to me for a few reasons. First off, I got to speak with the brilliant Tara O'Brady, author of one of the original Really Big Deal food blogs and cookbook of the same name, Seven Spoons. It was there that I first found the recipe for her basic great chocolate chip cookies— and only later did I learn that they've had wave after wave of popularity since the book came out in 2015 and have even been called the internet's favorite cookie. And for good reason. Like the name suggests, they are great and basic in preparation. The butter and eggs are cold from the fridge without waiting, and you don't need a stand mixer or any special equipment to make them. But the humble name will not prepare you for how perfect they taste. Crisp-edged and soft-bellied, and rippled with chocolate in all the right places. Buckle up, cookie freaks. Tara is going to teach you so much about the science of what makes a great chocolate chip cookie in this episode. And the reason why I am especially excited to be talking about this recipe with you today is because this recipe, that is the epitome of what I've come to think of as a simply genius recipe, can be found in my new cookbook, Simply Genius, which after four years of work is finally launching today. It's pretty surreal to think how different everything was four years ago. In my own life, I hadn't had my daughter yet or had long stretches where we needed to cook and clean up from three meals a day with no extended family or friends there to help us or distract us. I hadn't moved three times in a year. But through all of that time, I was piecing together this book with the recipes and tips from geniuses like Tara that actually fit into the challenging times and most importantly, brought us joy when it was hard to find. I think the book that's out now really reflects that. Recipes that are obsessively practical to make and very fun to eat, all wrapped up in a bright, colorful guide packed with handwritten tips and how-to illustrations and snafu-fixing primers and extra photos of all the key steps. As I mentioned in a previous episode, I'm thinking of it as the cookbook your scrapbooking aunt locked in a house for a few years, would have lovingly made you. It's honestly a little bit wacky, and I love it for that. I hope you do too. All that is to say, I am pretty thrilled that it's finally here, so that all of you can start making these life-changing, life-affirming recipes too. Like Tara's basic great chocolate chip cookie. In this episode, Tara tells me about how she landed on this recipe after testing over 700 different versions, and all of the fun riffs that she continues to play around with 
now that she's perfected it. But first, here's Tara to tell us about growing up watching the women in her family cook. One of the things that I often try to think about is where did I start cooking? And like so many people in the food space, I came from a cooking family. I came from a family largely of women because of the nature of my father's job and my uncle's job. They were both on ships. My father's ship's captain. My uncle was a chief engineer. So that meant my mom and her sister were often alone for long stretches of time with the children. So my cousins grew up like siblings. And so women were in the kitchen cooking and my grandmother would stay to help. So it was three women in the kitchen and cooking and they never taught me to cook. Everyone always thinks that I have all these wonderful stories because I had such wonderful cooks in my family, but they always sent the children out of the kitchen because they thought we should be doing homework or playing or doing other things. But I wanted to hang out because that's where the gossip was taking place. Then you could hear about Mm. the what was happening with family members. You would get the dirt on someone, what they really thought about people. Um, And also as a greedy little kid. And I wanted to see what everyone was making for dinner. And when I actually started cooking, I, I went into cooking food that had nothing to do with how my parents cooked with how because I never wanted to compare myself to them. So I actually went into baking which wasn't something my mother did a lot of what my aunt did a lot of, or my grandmother did a lot of. I didn't realize how much they had inherently taught me, except for the, a time that I was making cinnamon rolls and I was doing it for a story. And so I realized when I was taking shots of my hands that I needed dough the way that my mother's hands needed chapatis. Mm. And I don't know where I picked that up from, but I had always admired my mother's hands because she has beautiful long fingers and the grace in her hands. And the first time I saw my mother's hands in my own were in the photographs of those cinnamon rolls, something she had never made. My mom actually doesn't like cinnamon desserts, Um, (laughs) something she never taught me. But I realized that something in the way that I turned the dough was exactly how she needs Atta when she makes chapatis. And she never put me through those paces. I never made chapatis, but I guess it was from all those years of watching her. And so that was an enormous aha moment to me was that my kneading of dough somehow just from that proximity, how much we learn and pick up. That's incredible. <laughs> I, <laughs> it's it's kind of the dream is what, what you hope for by being in proximity to great cooks that you'll just kind of by osmosis pick up some of their talents. And with something like kneading dough too, it's almost the best way to learn too, just by by being around it and seeing it. it's so hard to explain something like that when you can't just like physically be in the presence of someone watching their movements, watching when they like have to make adjustments, smelling the smells, you know, maybe getting mm-hmm. to touch it. You're seeing you. all of the transformation. <laughs> you see the transformation because it went from this, Atta is really easy to make that you make for chapatis that doesn't have any leavener in it. It's basically... Um, oftentimes even made without salt, depending on the family. So it's basically flour and water that's made together. So it looks like nothing. And then it's only through the work in your hands. It's not through a leavener. It's not through yeast or baking soda. And it turns into the silky, wonderful mass. And I realize now how much she was creating that gluten cloak, how, how much she was stretching the dough and those little movements that just looked like a dance when I thought about them as a child. But then when I mimicked them as an adult and I had dough in my own hands, that's when I realized how much of a difference it made, how it was changing the dough, that the part of her hand that she was using rather than her fingertips, how, how low it was in her palm, all of those little details that I inherently just started, had learned to mimic, made that so much easier for me the first time that I ended up starting to make doughs myself. 
So how did you go from curious kid wanting to be in the kitchen, wanting to be around all of the action there to wanting to start your own blog and kind of check out making a career in it? I knew when I was choosing my education, choosing my career, I knew that the basic roots for me in food at that time was basically become a chef, which I knew I was not built for. I do not have that pirate mentality (laughs) and food criticism because the jobs in food journalism were few and far between. It was really much more towards restaurant criticism, which is not what I wanted to do. The Food Network was in the earliest sort of days, and it usually was food professionals or established chefs. So what I thought was that I that food was always going to be a love, but I ended up going into English and journalism and then working in corporate communications. That's where I started out. And a case of that I realized it wasn't for me very quickly. As I saw food blogs starting, I thought, well, maybe this is something. And I didn't think of it as a career. I thought it was an excuse and a medium for me to talk about food because food would be my never ending topic because I did not want to live journal it and talk about myself. That's just not who I am. And I think I'm kind of boring, but food is not. (laughs) So that it was a subject for me. And little did I know that the food blog was actually going to end up being my platform. But 2005 was very much that tipping point where food media exploded and it suddenly didn't matter where you were from, that the speed in which that we needed content started to ramp up. But it happened to coincide with my first maternity leave. Hmm. And so I decided to put time into it um, over the next few years as I had my first son. And I never went back because luckily some opportunities did start. The first thing was a magazine. I will forever be grateful to Janine, who is the editor there, who was looking for food content for their launch issue of the magazine. And it did not matter that I was in Niagara and she was in Calgary, but gave me a food column and it just freelance started from there. Um, and so magazines reached out, started writing for a few different outlets, kept it up with the blog for a while. And then that turned into a cookbook and then cookbook turned into television and turned into continuing to freelance with others. And the path of my career has had so many unexpected moments that it was a wonderfully fortuitous succession of events that sort of tumbled to take me along with it. And luckily I had the dexterity and the ability to follow that along. But if anyone was to map out my career or if I had intended to map out my career, never would I have known or would it have been possible for me to do so. I mean, I started out thinking I was going to be a name on a byline, if that. (laughs) And suddenly now media has changed so much that the possibilities have just opened up in such a wonderful way. And I've been so appreciative of being able to take advantage of that. Awesome. 10 years after launching your blog, you come out with the Seven Spoons cookbook, which is where your now famous basic great chocolate chip cookies were published. First off, just to kind of like set the scene, or when, when was your first relationship with a chocolate chip cookie starting to form? I think my first love of a chocolate chip cookie. And I don't know if they make them and I don't know what they were called in the United States. It might be the same thing, but there were crisp and chewy bagged chocolate chip cookies. They came in a red bag that had exactly crisp and chewy. It had a slightly crispy edge. They were probably very small. And I loved that cookie. My mom didn't bake a lot. Um, Every now and again, she'd make things, but it wasn't a household that had cake under a dome sitting. It was a special occasion thing. Most Indians, truthfully, 
traditionally don't do a lot of baking. So a lot of our sweets are from stores. So they're like Mathai's and like all the sweets like gulab jamun and those type of things. And Kier, like I had a lot of rice pudding growing up. So that was a thing. I just was obsessed with them. They had this wonderful texture um, that had like a slightly crispy edge, a chewy middle that was not underbaked, probably had a good amount of corn syrup in it. I don't know what it was, but it was, that was my favorite cookie. And then I'm also of an era of the mall cookie getting. Mm. So you had, we had a place called Treats in Canada for all the Canadians out there. That is, I think like a Mrs. Fields Uh and they made a big chocolate cookie that was more the crispy style, the fully crispy all the way through, very flat and kind of thick um, chocolate chip cookie. And it was a chocolate chunk. And I adored that cookie. But where I really took it into my own hands, like so many people, was in high school. And it started with the Toll House recipe. It mm-hmm. became that I wanted to become really good at, at baking. And that was like my entry into baking. Um, again, because it allowed me to be different from my very accomplished parents and family that were good cooks. Nobody made chocolate chip cookies. So I'm going to start making chocolate chip cookies and pavlovas. And I just went really hard into baking. And a wonderful entry point is the backside of a bag of chocolate chips. So it mm-hmm. was the Toll House recipe. And I realized, I don't know how I realized it, um, that the difference in sugars made it, that the ratio would make a difference. I was fiddling with ratios of sugar because I wanted that crisp and chewy where I wanted it to be chewier. And I wanted to figure it out. So Toll House was my, was the start of it very much for me. But it was, I remember learning to up the brown sugar and reduce the white sugar from their original recipe. So um, that's where I started, I guess. So interesting. And then what was the development process like of getting to this version? I remember seeing somewhere that you said it took you something like 700 tries to get this final version of the recipe. When, When was that? I was writing the book around the time that the Jacques Torres cookie was very much in the zeitgeist and everyone was talking about that cookie aging dough. The reason I started baking chocolate cookies was admittedly, I continued baking them from high school on trying recipes, all of that. And it was not, I never thought of it for publication. It was that I wanted a cookie for my family. Mm. I don't know why, but there are certain things that I always thought I want the kids to have a sense memory. Like this is the thing that they taste and it's their childhood or that a bake sale. You'll always know that this was mom's cookies. And for some reason for me, that was good old chocolate chip. And maybe because it represented something in this idealized sense of North Americanness mm-hmm. as like a third culture kid that I thought felt that I could give them something that I didn't always feel like I had. And that was that sense of ownership of culture, of this culture. And it actually started out very differently. And I have old photographs of the cookie because I knew I wanted chewiness. It started out with a long creaming process. The original Mm. version of the cookie, which somebody I know who was an early tester of it still makes, you cream the butter and sugar together for 10 minutes. Oh my gosh. To start out. So it was high, like you needed a mixer for it. You needed time for it because I was basically breaking down the sugar manually. And I love brownie. If I'm actually talking about what I want to eat, it's a brownie, not a cookie. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember the exact moment because I kept working with that cookie and thinking, I want it to be shinier. I want to have that fudgy too without using corn syrup, without making it underbaked. How am I going to achieve that need to break down the sugar? And then at some point I thought brownies, you melt the butter for brownies. 
Why don't I try that? And that is where the melted butter and suddenly a recipe that took 10 minutes just for the butter and sugar became a recipe that uses a bowl, a spoon. And for me, and admittedly, I'm fast at it. I can get start to cookies coming out of the oven in 30 minutes Mm -hmm. if I really want to, because it's that fast. And I, the reason I put it in the book was because it, it felt like it was adding something to the conversation at that time, melted butter, chocolate chip cookies was not a thing. It was kind of more than anything else that I thought this might be helpful to another mom or another person who's busy or someone who finds baking maybe daunting. They don't want to pull out a stand mixer or hand mixer. It was really those factors. It was no mixer, fridge cold eggs. You don't even have to remember to take out your eggs. You don't have to remember to take out your butter to make sure it's room temperature and that it was different. That Mm -hmm. was the reason it wasn't some great thought process beyond that. I thought maybe this is useful. And so it ended up in the book. Um, But yeah, it was 700 ish cookies. It sounds like a really big project. It really was. And it's what taught me in so much, in so many ways, the lessons of how those little tweaks end up absolutely changing a very simple recipe because chocolate chip cookies, if you compare recipe to recipe, it's ratio. And Mm -hmm. it's a fairly close ratio for most recipes that are out there. There's sometimes you'll have extra egg yolks or sometimes you'll have bread flour used instead. But when you look at and generally speaking, it's pretty close because a cookie dough consistency will be a cookie dough consistency. That's why we use that as like a touchstone when we're trying to tell people a consistency. As soon as you say that, people know what you mean. And it is the nuances of that. You think of somebody like Sarah's hand banging cookies. There's Mm -hmm. that little thing that changes the way that a standard cookie is going to bake. Hey, it's Kristen. We will be back with more from Tara O'Brady in just a moment. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. We're back with Tara O'Brady. Do you feel like there's one thing that makes your cookie work with melted butter, whereas like the Toll House cookie, if you melted the butter, it wouldn't quite work? Or do you feel like it was the, the aggregation of all those tiny little changes that kept moving you forward to the cookie that you have that does work well with melted butter? I think it's the aggregation of it. It's also the fact that the, the fridge cold eggs change it Mm. as well because if you don't if you do have it with if you do have room temperature it doesn't bring the temperature down of the butter well enough Mm. and yet at the same time you don't want the butter to have re-solidified too much if it's too cool it won't have the same effect on the sugars because we need that liquid we need the water that's available there and that's also the difference of it not being a brown butter cookie so I, i think it's really that it's all those nuanced little changes. It's also that ratio of of brown sugar to white sugar as well, because of how brown sugar will behave with the melted butter is different. So what would you say are the 
the keys that you think make your cookie the way that it is, the way that you wanted it to be with the crispy edges and the chewy centers? Like, what are the things that you really don't want to miss in this recipe as you're making it? Admittedly, I think everyone that you talk to probably talks about um, if you always scale your ingredients. That's mm-hmm. so often what people, when people tell me my cookies came out too cakey, it's usually because they're using volume measurements on their flour. And so I'll always say that I think that's, but that's not specific to my recipe. That's specific to baking. Mm-hmm. For this recipe, I think the keys are making sure you do not overheat the butter. If you are starting to brown it, adding that, you can just go measure it afterwards. And if you've lost lost volume in it, add the water back to bring it back to volume. Hmm. That will work. And so that's something to do because you're basically looking for butter that's actually melted and not starting to crackle. When the butter starts crackling and steaming, that's when you're losing moisture from your butter. So we want like the lowest flame possible. If you don't achieve that, add the water back. So making sure you don't lose moisture in your butter is number one. The dough should never... Some people will say that the dough looks chalky to them. And if that's the case, it's usually that they've overpacked their flour or they've cooked the water out of their butter. Mm-hmm. So those are those two. I do think my cookie behaves better with chocolate bars or fevs or unstabilized chocolate. So as you know, that chippets, any sort of chocolate morsel, they frequently have stabilizers, which allow them to retain their kiss shape. And once again, thinking about what's happening to a cookie when it's baking, as it heats, that melting action that happens when you have unstabilized chocolate. So bar chocolate can be baking chocolate, doesn't have to be fancy chocolate, anything that will actually melt and puddle. It's the force of that that's, again, going to help the cookie spread. And one of the things I love about my cookies is that when you break it apart, you get a stratum. You you have wonderfully delineated layers of dough and cookie and dough and cookie. And that is because of the rivulets that sort of make their way through of the melting chocolate. But what's more, there is actual force to be had in melting. Think of it as it expands and puddles. The cookie expands and puddles. And I love that because that's what gives you this like wonderfully big cookie, but it gives a flat cookie that ha- but that still has a bit of height to it. So chopped chocolate, that, and then shaping again, making sure that you, after you portion it, I usually use a disher for ease, is that always to roll it into balls. And that again, will help you with the shaping of your cookie. It comes, they come out beautifully round that way. You can always reshape them if necessary, but also again, making it into like a quick little roll of balls. This is for those that have children. That was always a great job was I have one just dishing them out and then the other one would roll them because they had practice from Play-Doh and you just roll them out that way. But you want a, this cookie behaves better for what I'm looking for if it's been rolled into a round ball. And that way also will give you that wonderful spread and size of cookie. Amazing. You've made this cookie <laughs> so many, many, many times over the years. And I've seen that you like to play around with um, different mix-ins, different flours. What are your favorite ways to riff with this recipe? One, I do love adding whole grain flours to it. Rye flour is really fantastic in that in the cookie. Another one I love doing is I do a, a marshmallow cookie that a lot of people seem to get very excited about. And I have a secret to that that I haven't told anyone, but I'll what? tell you. <laughs> is instead of using marshmallows, I use marshmallow fluff. Frequently, you'll see marshmallow cookies that use marshmallows. Again, I don't want stability. I want a cold cookie that when you pull it apart, if you use actual marshmallows, when you pull a cold cookie apart, it's just a solid marshmallow. You know mm-hmm. what a marshmallow is like in a bag? It's stable. Mm-hmm. What I do is I use a cookie scoop or like a disher and I take a bit of dough 
I love that I'm giving you the secret. Oh my gosh, world's first. <laughs> Make a well in the middle of your disher that has now been lined with sort of like a cookie dough cup on the, in it. And then I take a smaller disher or spoon and I scoop marshmallow fluff in the middle and then put more dough on top. So you have it enrobed in cookie dough, mm-hmm. ensconced in its cookie dough, and then bake it that way. So it's actually marshmallow fluff filled cookies rather than a marshmallow filled cookie. And the difference is astounding. Because as it melts, it does the same molten action. It spreads your cookie out. And then my other secret is that they come out of the oven and then it doesn't burn, which is great because frequently marshmallows will burn when they have surface contact with your cookie sheet. This way, it's, it's buffered by that cookie dough bottom. Some might peek its way out, but beautifully so. And then I take a culinary torch and I torch it in those spots where the white is peeking through. So you get that toasted marshmallow effect. But as soon as you pull it open, it doesn't matter if it's two days later, it will still have that wonderful velvety fluff consistency rather than a cold marshmallow. So that is another one. I love doing that. Um, Sometimes add nuts to it. That is another one that does really well with a whole wheat flour in it because it kind of evokes graham cracker, but it also adds kind of like a flinty quality. And I also tend to add a little bit of ground coffee to that, not coffee Mm. powder, but actual ground coffee to it when I'm melting the butter, because that little bit of bitterness counteracts the sweetness of the marshmallow fluff, because that's kind of intensely sweet Mm -hmm. and brings out the chocolate. So that is, I would say the marshmallow stuffed cookies are my favorite and my oatmeal version are the two favorite riffs. Giving away all the secrets. Oh my gosh. I love that thought process that you're paying attention to what the cold cookie is going to be like, because it's not all that hard to make a really good warm cookie out of the oven, but that's not how we eat most of our cookies. Very much. As you said, the reality, I want a cookie jar cookie mm-hmm. that you can be walking by two days later, three days later. Um, I will admit I've been sneaking into the back to school cookies this week with having a coffee and then just wanting to like pick off a nibble of the oatmeal cookies to dunk in my coffee. And I love that they still are chewy and they have a textural quality to them. They don't feel like an afterthought. They don't feel like a leftover. Cookie jar cookie to me is the ideal cookie because that's a cookie that doesn't feel like you have, because who can eat? You're not eating a dozen cookies in a day. I want something that's going to serve you well. I'm always trying to think of the usefulness. And so this will serve you well. And that future you is feeling thankful for what you did earlier in the week. Thanks for listening. And my thanks to Tara O'Brady for joining me today. Be sure to find her on Instagram, Substack, and at her website, which are all linked in our show notes. Also linked in our show notes is my new cookbook, Simply Genius, Recipes for Beginners, Busy Cooks, and Curious People. Finally, four long years later. This week's episode was put together by me, Kristen McGlory, executive producer Harry Sultan, and with post-production by Crutch Phrase Studios. If you have a favorite cookie jar recipe, I would love to hear about it at genius at food52.com or by tagging me on Instagram at McGlorious. And if you like the Genius Recipe Tapes podcast, the very best thing that you can do to support us and to help other people find our show is to take a moment to leave us a five-star rating and review. Or just send this episode to other cookie monsters like us. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.